Welcome to All Students of Stanford Unite, the official podcast of the Associated Students of Stanford University and Stanford Student Enterprises. I'm your host, Cricket Vitalman. Today's guest is the Hearst Professor of Communications, Director of the Stanford Journalism Program, and also the Communications Department Chair, Professor Hamilton. Hello, Professor Hamilton. Hi. Would you mind telling us a little more about yourself? Sure. You describe my titles. I think of myself as an economist who enjoys teaching and likes to work on puzzles that have positive spillovers on society. How does economics intersect with communications and journalism? I think if you're an economist, you see the world through markets. And most of my work in the last 20 years has focused on the market for public affairs information. And I came to Stanford eight years ago because I was interested in helping to develop a field called computational journalism. So that's how I made the migration from having a PhD in economics, teaching at a public policy school very happily at Duke University for about 20 years and then coming here. What got you inspired to go into higher education and communications in general? That's a, that's a very interesting question. I grew up in Washington, D.C., and I worked on a lot of internships. I worked as a tour guide at the Supreme Court starting when I was 16, and I worked in a summer internship at the House Budget Committee. I worked at a campaign committee, and I worked for an outlet called the National Journal, which is a weekly on politics and government. And through my senior year in college, where I was an economics and government major, I thought I was going to go to law school, but the process of writing my senior thesis, which was about political campaign contributions, I really enjoyed the research so much that after I graduated from college and started to work in management consulting, I realized that I didn't like working on questions that other people specified. I wanted to work on things that I thought were interesting. And I saw applying to get a PhD rather than a law degree was the pathway for me to uh, keep on learning and keep on working on questions related to public policy. That sounds like a really good way of getting involved. How would you define journalism then? So I wrote a book called All the News That's Fit to Sell how the market transforms information into news. And in that book, I used a pretty broad definition drawing on the work of actually a Stanford PhD economist, Anthony Downs. He wrote a book called An Economic Theory of Democracy. And he said, we all have four information demands in our roles as consumers or workers and audience members and voters. And I think journalism can be a system of information provision that helps you solve each of those four information demands. It could help you think about products you're going to buy. It could help you do your day job better. It could simply entertain you, and it could help you hold politicians accountable. I know people who are thinking about maybe applying to grad school in journalism or something similar. And some of them have only written op-eds or things like that for the daily. Would that count as journalism? And also, it seems like people are migrating into podcasts and other more auditory media. Do you think those would count as well? Sure. 
There's a great book called The Elements of Journalism. Tom Rosensteel is one of the co-authors. And one of the functions of journalism he talks about is as a public square where ideas are debated. And I think opinion pieces have always been a part of journalism, going back to the party press. The important thing is that they be labeled or that you signal to the reader in some way that this is different than a straight news account. And that type of labeling and signaling gets lost in social media when you don't see it within the context of a homepage or a news app. But I definitely think when in our program, we require people to provide three samples and uh, opinion pieces have definitely been part of the application package. Similarly, podcast. Last year, we had a student for his MA thesis do podcasts about climate change. And in fact, our program teaches multimedia skills. And we've had people for their senior theses in journalism do long form magazine articles, articles that have ended up in the New York Times, wow. websites, algorithms, 360 video, and podcast. Wow. So how does an algorithm then count as journalism? So that was, there have been several. One of them, if you think about how you discover stories, an algorithm can help you see things just like a picture can help you see things. And if you go back to say the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, what they were able to do, they did a series on doctors practicing across the country who had been involved in sexual harassment disciplinary cases, but were still practicing medicine. And the way they found those doctors and told that story, they wrote scrapers, which downloaded the disciplinary cases from around the country at all the 50 state medical societies. And that yielded about 100,000 cases. Wow. Then they used a machine learning algorithm to uh, using keywords to basically write a model that predicted whether a case likely dealt with sexual harassment. And that cut down the number of cases that they needed to look at from 100,000 to 6,000. And then with 6,000 cases, they could actually go through and read those. And that's how they did their story. And they were a Pulitzer Prize finalist because of that. Wow. So when we think about algorithms, you could think of it as a tool that helps you spot something, spot how an institution is breaking down or how an individual is going awry as they are exercising power. I didn't think about it that way. So it seems like in general that people are transitioning a lot more to data journalism, especially because of COVID and everyone's hopefully isolated a little bit. So how would you say that the history of news media has affected its development? So I think that if we just take uh, one example of the evolution of computer-assisted reporting to data journalism to computational journalism, those are three different terms. Computer-assisted reporting came late 80s, early 90s with the development of the personal computer. And essentially, it was a way for people to get relational databases. You could look at, say, get a list of sex offenders in an area and cross it with school bus drivers and see uh, if there might be problematic hiring decisions made at the local level. And computer-assisted reporting at that time was, it was an evolution from 
documents-driven investigative reporting. Data journalism, fast forward to the year 2010, that had an element of spreadsheets, but it also had an element of data visualization and uh, the presentation in graph form to readers on the web. And then now in 2020, we're starting to see the spread of what I would call computational journalism, which is stories by, through, and about algorithms. It's really the application of computation at all stages of journalism production. But if you think about stories by algorithm, we now have sports stories, finance stories, quarterly earnings report stories that are written by algorithm. You input information, say, about what the earnings were for a company, and that type of article follows pretty much a cookie cutter, and you get quickly a story. Same thing can be done with the writing of a sports story by algorithm. Stories through algorithms, that's what I was just talking about with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, using algorithms and data to find a story. And then stories about algorithms, that's one of my favorite types of reporting now. You had uh, several reporters say at ProPublica that studied machine bias, that's what they called their series of articles at Facebook, and they found problematic examples. For instance, they were able to place ads on Facebook for housing-related services, but they were able to use the advertising software at Facebook that said, please don't show this to African-Americans. And that was likely illegal, and it caused change. And those reporters went on to found something called the Markup, which is a great outlet now, which uses investigative reporting to focus on the tech industry. That's increasingly important with targeted ads and other things like that, and with YouTube and its propensity for showing people who look at liberal news more liberal ads. I think that a lot of people get stuck in what some people refer to as the echo chamber or the bubble, and their perspectives aren't really changed on key issues because they don't see anything that's not already within their points of view. How do you think that has been affected, especially recently with COVID and the current administration? So I think that there are a couple of things that have gone on. One is, it is the case that social media platforms often monetize their work through advertising and advertising flourishes with engagement. So just sticking with your YouTube example, there's academic research by people at the University of Texas, for instance, about how quickly YouTube might take you from videos about Islam to ISIS. And you see that in other domains too, that there's sort of a ratcheting up of intensity or extremism, and that keeps you glued to the screen. I think through 2016, platforms like Facebook, my main critique of Facebook through 2016 was that it was ignoring the positive spillovers it could have on society, not doing as much to increase debate about public affairs issues or register people to vote, for instance. After 2016, after what we saw with the interference from other countries in the electoral process, 
I think it then became more an issue of negative spillovers. And I think there's an interesting market mechanism where advertiser boycotts or employee morale is starting to lead more Silicon Valley companies in general to consider the role that they play in political discussions, particularly in the United States. I just saw something on Facebook through Tuesday, and it may still be up there, that said that everyone should register to vote. And there has been a little bit of an influx of things that have encouraged people to stay safe with coronavirus. In the First Amendment, there's freedom of speech and freedom of assembly and other things like that, but there's also freedom of the press. I think recently, though, that a lot of people have been concerned about, does that actually exist since the media has been privatized and now media is not allowed to participate in some government affairs and things like that? Yeah, I'm very thankful that we live in a country with the First Amendment. So, for instance, if you look at Facebook and if you believe that they are or are not doing enough to label misinformation, I think that I wouldn't, for instance, favor using more government regulation. I think that there are ways that you can try to change a company's behavior, especially a media company, through advertiser boycotts or making appeals to their employees. Or if you think about Facebook and Google, they are dual stock structure companies where the founders, uh, three people in the case of Google, including Eric Schmidt and one person in Facebook, they have majority voting or enough voting to control the company. And so when you look at the annual reports, they explicitly say that those folks can take actions which may not be profit maximizing. That's a long way of saying that I think that I would not rely on government regulation, but I would note that I think it's important to say that Facebook and Google are media companies. They wrap advertising around content, and that is their business model. And I think for a long time, and even through today, they don't like the categorization of media companies because media companies traditionally have been thought of as having social responsibility because there's the recognition of the positive and negative spillovers from their products. But I do think that a lot of what goes on in Facebook and Google is protected by the First Amendment, and I'm happy for that. Not just with Facebook and Google. Do you think that freedom of the press exists when the government restricts so much information? So right now, I think that the government restricts coverage of public affairs, the current government, in part by blocking people who've been involved in government from telling their story. That's often, we've seen that. There's controversy around John Bolton's book. We also see attempts to stymie the use of the Freedom of Information Act. I also think that the current administration is doing what the Nixon administration did, but doing it much more publicly. And I say that because, and I've written about this in the Washington Monthly, 
if you look at if you listen to the Nixon tapes and look at the memos from his administration, there was a clear strategy to demonize the media and discredit them so that when the president ran for re-election in 1972, people would not believe them. And I think that you see clearly the same thing being done in the current administration, calling the media the enemy of the people, mm-hmm. using the term fake news, uh, celebrating violence against journalism, calling on uh, rally goers to vilify people. So I think that's all a way of debasing and discrediting people who are in journalism, some of whom are my former students. I would definitely not characterize what they are doing as the work of enemy of the people. So do you think then that that may have had anything to do with the fact that Bob Woodward had all this information about the Trump administration and then withheld it for six months? You know, it's funny. As an economist, I have... I like to look at multiple data points and then have a model and draw a line. So it's hard with one person to make a judgment. I thought it was interesting that Woodward said that President Trump was telling him some things. He wasn't sure at the time what the state of knowledge was inside the White House. And he also felt like his own work would be more powerful as a total painting rather than a pointillist view of looking just at some things. I understand the criticism that the information might have been more impactful in policy debates if it had been released. That would have probably shut down what Woodward was later to learn. And so I can see a world where Woodward was trying to maximize his impact and it also maximized the economic return to his book. That makes sense. Do you think then that part of it might have been about the fact that now this information is super close to the election? Because I could definitely see that if he released this information in the middle of COVID, that some of it would have been overshadowed by the fact that we were in the middle of a pandemic. Yes, I think that it's very clear that we have a numbness and a rapidly accelerating media news cycle and stories that would be horrifying in another decade or another presidency are Tuesday afternoon in the current world we live in. So I think if you're trying to write a book that has an impact in public debate, it's very fact-based. I mean, there you can listen to recordings that releasing it close to the election is important. It's very interesting, too. I've, I was just reading today that there has been a mini-series about James Comey, and Jeff Daniels is in that. The cable channel was going to release it after the election, hmm. and he said... You can do that, but if you do that, I won't do any promotion for it. And so they've just announced that they are going to release it before the election. And he felt like that was the right thing to do because sometimes people learn and are reached through entertainment. If you think about the number of people who learned about the Catholic Church pedophile scandals and uh, the work of the Spotlight team in the Boston Globe, most of that came through the movie Spotlight. Is this series then supposed to be entertaining or educational or political? I think it's meant to be entertaining, but Sesame Street and Schoolhouse Rock have shown us that you can reach and then teach. I think that there are definitely political miniseries, political tales that are really great stories and can also change how you see the world. 
And there's a company in Hollywood, Participant Media, that has done movies that help tell stories and also going back again to the Downsing information demands might help you think about the world as you are voting. One thing that we've seen recently is that a lot more minority issues have come to light in media. But previously, that wasn't the case. And in some cases, in a lot of cases, actually, the minority issues are still extremely underrepresented. I think part of the increasing highlighting of minorities has been because of video technology, but I still think that minorities are incredibly underrepresented. How do you think that has affected American culture? I think that there are so many stories that go untold today in the United States, in part through this combination of race and class. I've done research recently on the information lives of low-income individuals with Fiona Morgan. And if you think about the five incentives that lead people to provide you with information, they are pay me, that's the subscription model, that's, or I want to sell your attention, that's advertising. Nonprofit, I want to change how you think about the world. Partisan, that's I want your vote. And uh, self-expression, I just like to talk. All of those are biased against low-income individuals. It may not be the target that you're trying to reach with your advertising because of their limited means. And the geography of poverty and the geography of race, if you look at the book Color of Law, if you look at the history of GI Bill and housing after World War II, the government has done a great deal to maintain racial housing segregation. That translates, in a way, into media segregation. And it also has a big impact on wealth inequality. If you think about a community that an individual person lives in, if that community may not be wealthy, then there may not be a media outlet telling the story of that community. Unfortunately, when you look in media markets, how well your interests are served depends on how many people there are who share those. And more importantly, how the market values those stories. So in part, I'm telling a story about supply disadvantages, but there's also implicit racism in the hiring within media organizations. And there's a great disconnect between the staff in Metro newspapers and the communities that they're covering in a large Metro area. One of the things that's started to happen over the last two years is that there's been a renewal of debate and a focusing on attention in hiring and diversity within media organizations. Is there even a future for people who might be interested in reporting primarily on minority issues? Oh yeah, I mean, I think that there are positive things going on. One of which is you don't need to be part of a major media organization to get your story to the world now. Barriers to entry are low on the web. You have more people who can start a news outlet and tell the story of a, a geography. It could be Memphis, it could be Oakland, through a nonprofit website, and you can stand that up with two, three, or four people. The Ford Foundation, has recently produced a report, in part the work of a former JSK fellow, that looks at how funders 
have been trying to help nonprofit stories, nonprofit organizations. And I think there's a greater emphasis now in nonprofits and in funders to providing support for outlets that focus on people of color and on the training of people of color in journalism. I think it was just this week that Craig Newmark gave a significant gift to Howard University's journalism program. It seems like a huge focus in media has been COVID-19, but that despite that, some aspects of it have fallen through the cracks. As an example, a lot of Native Americans were not given nearly sufficient federal aid um, to help with COVID-19. Why is that the case? I think information inequality stems from economic inequality. One of the things that if you look at some of the programs, lending for small businesses, a lot of those were done through banks and banks relied on previous connections they had. And if there are systematic barriers in banking and networking within credit markets, then it makes it much more difficult. That was actually a government program and it was made much more difficult by relying on current economic relationships. I would want to say too that I'd like to give a shout out to Big Local News, which is... Professor Phillips, right? Yes. Cheryl Phillips has a great program going with Stanford students and with three full-time data journalists at Stanford. The idea is that you can take data sets, clean them, and share them out again with the world, and that can lower the cost of reporters to finding stories. And if you give data plus a recipe, that can help a story be told. And she's been doing great work with maps and COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And she and the JSK fellows have just program have announced a grant program for journalists to tell COVID stories through data. And for instance, there was a very interesting Stanford undergrad volunteer group last spring and into the summer that essentially used data journalism to figure out where school lunch programs were still distributing food even though the schools were closed. And that was great public service journalism. After we shift away from the election, how can the public start to hold news media more accountable for focusing on non-political, more cultural issues? I'm a big believer in consumer dollar votes. What that means is that we often listen to NPR, KQED. We often see in our social media feeds, stories from local news outlets. But unless you're subscribing, you're free riding. I think that's one of the most important things that we can do. Rather than say, government, why don't you do this? It can be subscriber heal thyself. You know, try to figure out. I subscribe to the Palo Alto Weekly, and I think they have really great coverage of the school board and the city council. And I do that not because it was founded by Bill Johnson, an alum from the Stanford Communication Department from the 1970s, but I do it because I think that the journalism that it produces is important for the community that I live in. And I also give to KQED, not because they have hired tremendous MA graduates like Farida Jarabala, Romero, or Peter Arcuni, both of whom have MA degrees from Stanford, but I do it because I think that they tell really great stories about our broader Bay Area, and some of those relate to culture, too. Makes a lot of sense. 
Speaking of culture, I have talked to people about campus issues and how reporting or lack thereof has affected campus culture. And so I wanted to ask you, first of all, are you a subscriber to the Stanford Report as well? Oh, yeah. I get that every day. And I find it really helpful. I find it helpful in part because they have great links to transcripts of events or videos. I actually like to listen to speeches by academic administrators. I've always been that way from the three universities I've been associated with, Harvard, Duke, and Stanford. I think it's important because people in academia can be pretty thoughtful about why they're doing something and what they're trying to achieve. So Stanford Report helps me find those speeches or videos of meetings. I also really like email updates that the Stanford Daily provides now. Mm -hmm. And I think the Daily is really flourishing in the COVID era. It's really hastened the migration to online. And the Daily has a great data journalism section that I would encourage people to look at. And the Daily is also doing an excellent job running workshops and seminars for high school journalists. I think there are many positive things happening in terms of journalism about Stanford. I think the one information hole that I see is stories that make people see positive things that are happening. That's not a critique of any particular outlet. I think there are so many parts of the world, the state, on fire, literally and figuratively, that it's natural to see what's gone wrong. But I think there are some things that are going right. And finding those stories is a little harder. But I also think it would be of interest that people would read. Do you think people would read them, though? Because I know a lot of people who are just really tired of the news, but who still feel like they have to pay attention to it because there's so much that they need to be aware of. Yeah, I think they would read it. It's now shocking <laughs> for some people. I think that they're depends on what your Bayesian prior is about how things are going at a particular institution. I think positive stories that were real would really be of interest. And I have met some people wearing a mask six feet distanced who've told me, you know, this is something that I feel that I'm flourishing in and this is what I'm doing. And I think sharing those stories would be particularly interesting. For instance, one thing that is helping me get through this period, which I find very challenging, is the Fresh Air Archives from Terry Gross. I did a search on that and found that she has a thousand episodes that wow, relate wow. to journalism. And I'm working through them backwards. Right now I'm in 1984 and really liking it. I just stumbled upon that. And I think there's a lot of work out there. I admit I do it sometimes as an escape but it also provides you with interesting context about today, too. Speaking of positive resources, then, what is one resource that you would recommend to students today who might be swamped in the quagmire of negativity and schoolwork and stuff? Let's see. That's a good question. I do like fresh air, obviously. I would recommend that. I think a political podcast, I won't recommend particular ones, but I like the podcast format because... It allows you, the person, to have a voice and to go deeper. So I am less likely to listen to breaking news or less likely to watch a day's recap and more likely to go for history or context. Well, that's about all the time we have today. Is there anything else you'd like to add? 
I'd like to add that you were a student in my class, yes, um, I was. twenty-five, and mm-hmm. that I really appreciate that you are a storyteller and that you are trying to help people understand this time period. I found it really interesting to go back and read the Stanford Magazine's coverage of the pandemic at Stanford in 1918. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping that all the media that you and Stanford Daily and other people are producing, someday people will look back and say, so this is what it was like. This is what people were thinking about. So I'd like to thank you for not only studying journalism, but for doing it on a Friday afternoon, approximately five o'clock Pacific time. Of course, I really enjoy this work and it started, as I've said to several people, as a job interview rambling that turned into quite the project and I'm hoping to continue this maybe even after I leave the ASSU. So thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Hamilton. Thank you. Take care. You as well. Bye-bye. That was Professor James Hamilton, who is the Communications Department Chair at Stanford, the Hearst Professor in Communications, and the Director of the Stanford Journalism Program. I highly recommend his book, Democracy's Detectives. In the meantime, I'm Cricket Beidelman, your host of All Students of Stanford Unite, the official podcast of the Associated Students of Stanford University and Stanford Student Enterprises. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email communications at assu.stanford.edu. Thanks so much, and have a great day. Oh,